Hi, I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of Humanitu, a podcast that empowers connection through conversations of humanism and creativity. Today I'm talking with circus performer and teacher Eliana Grace. But first, I want to bring up a question I have for you. I usually ask it at the end of each episode, during the outro, after I've asked my guest a version of the question and we've said our goodbyes. And every now and then, I bring it into the intro, like now, to mix things up and shine a little extra light on it. So, here it is. The question, how do you live humanness and creativity in your life? So this question, and this idea of humanness and creativity, this gets to the heart of humanity. And, in fact, I've got a solo podcast episode coming up soon in which I'm going to get into my own thoughts on that question. In the meantime, I'm going to invite you to think about your own answer to it. At least whatever the answer is at this moment, because, of course... It can change. It does. It will. But how do you live humanist and creativity in your life? And if you feel like sharing it with me, send me an email. I share my email address at the end of each episode. And maybe we can collect enough of these answers every so often to create the occasional special episode, just for sharing some of them out loud with each other. Back to Eliana. Eliana Grace. Where to begin? I've been aware of Eliana's extraordinary path for many years. I once met her, actually, when she was a preteen, and which is to say already midway into her career in life as it stands at this point. And Eliana grew up in a circus family and in the circus life from infancy, like from being a baby, being breastfed while sitting atop an elephant kind of infancy. She and her younger brothers, who also are globe-traveling professional circus performers, spent more time with their fantastically strange and sometimes dangerous, home away from home in St. Louis, the City Museum. More time there than they did at their home home. And Eliana shares some laugh-out-loud stories from that. And by the way, Eliana, she spent a year riding the rails with the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus as, we'll say, the most singularly explosive performer in the circus. So look, I said where to begin. I don't know where to end either. So I'm just going to do it now. There's a lot in this in a short period of time. A lot of very interesting stories, lessons, and a bunch I'm not even going to tease here. I just want to get into it. So here we go. My conversation with Eliana Grace. Eliana, it's great to have you here at Humanitu. Thanks for joining me. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. You know, we met so many years ago when you were actually a child and doing what it is you do. When someone, a stranger that you meet on the street, or let's say it's a stranger on a plane back before the pandemic grounded us and when that might have actually happened, that kind of encounter, and people ask in small talk, what do you do? I'm curious what your answer is because it's an extraordinary (laughs) answer. It's got to be. Well, I laugh usually, um, and then I decide if I want to have a, an in-depth conversation with them or not. Um, right. So if I don't, I'll just tell them that I'm a teacher and an artist. Um, it's kind of the easy way out. And then if they seem like cool people, I will let them know that I am a circus performer and a circus teacher. Uh, and that usually gets the conversation going. <laughs> yeah, very easily, right? And I'm, it's kind of funny to me that you use artist as a way to make it an easier conversation. <laughs> I talk with so many artists and they're like, oh, the last thing I want to do is tell them I'm an artist because it's going to bring so many questions. Well, artist definitely brings less questions than circus performer. So how about the time 
in your career, uh, a few years ago, several years ago, when you were the human cannonball for Ringling Brothers, I can only imagine what kind of responses that would bring. Yeah, that that was um, I. I once went to the doctor and they didn't believe me when, when they, (laughs) when I told them what I did. So, yeah. So, you know, thinking about that, I've been giving some thought to this of just how rare of a job that is that might get that kind of reaction because, uh, you know, I, I have read that human cannonballs, there have been at least 30 who actually died doing the job. And over these many years, there still can only have been so many people slide down into a cannon and get shot out of it. Did you ever consider the rarity of that experience? Um, actually, no. <laughs> I, I grew up uh, in a circus and around the circus. So like one of my old coaches was an old cannonball and I knew a, a handful of people who had done it. So while the number is quite small to the normal population, um, I didn't feel especially special to, to be one of them, I guess, if that makes sense. Well, I guess it does, but that's just really <laughs> interesting because it's such an uncommon experience. And with that in mind, part of the reason I'm sure, and part of the reason it's of fascination to audience members is because of the idea of risk. And I'm curious, you know, I'm thinking some adults might say, well, surely they've made it really safe. Like we kind of give that assumption to things. Well, it must be safe or they wouldn't do it. And then Mm -hmm. I imagine there are others who are like, you've got to be kidding. That's got to be insanely dangerous. And I mentioned people have died doing the job. And I'm kind of wondering, what did you actually consider the the risk level to be when you were going to do it? Yeah, so... When I first was approached about the job, um, my very first response was that I was bad at math um, because you have to, there's a lot of calculations and there's a lot of, you know, thought that gets put into, into what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I was terrible at math in school. So that was my biggest concern. Um, but once, once you start doing it, that you develop um, what I call a healthy fear so you realize that what you're doing is dangerous and you respect that. Um, and then, you know, you do it anyway. It's kind of how you do it. And you, and you take as many precautions as you possibly can to make it as safe as, pos- as you possibly can with the knowledge that there's no way to completely, you know, make it safe or, or you know, risk, risk-free. Right. And I, I want to point out that when this opportunity came to you, when you started your training and performing as the human cannonball for Ringling, you were only 20 years old, right? Yeah. Yep. I was 20. I turned 21 um, while I was doing it and I wasn't able to, to like have a big 21 birthday bash because I had to shoot the next day and drink, <laughs> drinking and cannon don't really go hand in hand. Well, this is a, feels like a really silly question, but Why? Like what, what is it that really makes that clear? Like, oh, don't do, don't mix those things. Um, so, you know, if you've ever been hung over, your balance is off and your brain isn't working as fast. Uh, you might not has, have as good of reflexes. So you, you want to be as clear headed as possible when you go in there. So um, that's really the bigger issue is that you just, you want to, you want to have all your, all your brain power and your body on the same page. That makes sense. Makes sense. So sticking with the Ringling Brothers experience, you know, it just seems like 
to an outsider, a non-circus performer like me, like this has just got to be a dream come true. Yet I know for every adventure, every extraordinary kind of thing out there in the world that there's also uh, the moments when you might just feel lonely or you might feel like, okay, this isn't feeling so dreamy right now. And I, I'd just like for you to, if you wouldn't mind sharing some of those stories or just what your memory of the experience overall, riding on the train and all these things, like whatever it is you care to share from behind the scenes that otherwise none of us would actually ever know. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was on Ringling for um, about a year, a little over a year, um, both training and performing. And, you know, it was an incredible experience for growth. I was so young when I went on and so green. You know, I, I really learned a lot about myself and about what I wanted out of life and what I was was and wasn't okay with. Um, you know, but as far as like, you know, really low points, I was really blessed. I have an incredible support system. Um, and I made some really good friends. Uh, there's so, so how Ringling Brother travels is for that show, The Red Unit. We had a little over 300 people who traveled all together. So it was like a tiny village, essentially. And uh, you travel by train. Um, some people would travel by caravan, but for the most part, everyone lived on the train. So you, you have this sense of community and it, it's really, you know, special. And there's, there's really nothing like it. And I've never experienced anything quite like it again, traveling by train like that. It was absolutely my favorite experience. If I could live on a train again, I would do so in an absolute heartbeat. What did you love about that part in particular? The train? Um, yeah. It was just, it's like living in a in a dorm room or an apartment where you know a lot of, like everybody, all your neighbors. Um, but every week you have a different view. So, you know, we went through Penn Station. I got to stand on the, the vestibule and like look out and like watch Penn Station go by. Or like we were up in the mountains, which is really beautiful. It, it's just there's something about the movement of the train. And then uh, within the train, there's this a car that's called pie car that is um, kind of like a, a diner. So like while the train is moving, you could go to this diner, essentially. And people would play cards, you would watch movies, you just hang out. And you could get almost anything cooked. They didn't use the fryers while while the train was moving because that was a little dangerous, the hot oil. But you could get French toast or, or breakfast, uh, lunch, dinner, you know. And if you were friends with the cooks, they would make you just about anything, even if it wasn't on the menu, which is really, that's when you knew you had made it, is when the cooks liked you enough to, to cook you something special. I'm, I'm struggling to even imagine what conversations with friends that are numbering in the hundreds, who all are part of the circus and what that means, many of you having rather unusual and special skills uh, and just being performers in general. It's, I think, an extraordinary thing. And I'm just kind of picturing those moments, whether it's in the pie car or wherever you might be passing some time and just getting into, you know, conversations, laughter, whatever's going on. It, it's just got to be such an unusual perspective from that group of people. Am, am, I, am I romanticizing this myself and, or do you really remember it as, something like that. I mean, I think from the outside looking in, it it certainly probably looked very exotic. Um from the inside looking out, it was normal. I mean, those are your friends, those are your 
the people that you like, the people that you don't like, the drama, the happy times, the sad times is very similar to, to what normal people go through. The only difference is, you know, a couple times a week they get in tiger cages or ride elephants or, you know, <laughs> go upside down on trapeze or, or, you know, get into clown makeup. But overall, it's they're normal people. The, the backgrounds were really what varied and where people came from and their experiences, uh, just all walks of life. It sounds like it would be such a great learning experience. And, and you said you learned a lot about yourself and life. Are there things that stand out in this moment that you did learn that you carry with you uh, now these years later and probably will continue to? Wow, that's a hard question. Um, yes and no. It's something that I will, and I've I've accepted this, or I'm learning to accept this. I should I should say um, it's something that'll always be attached to me. So it was one year of my life, but I will never ever ever live it down. Or you know, it's it's always something that comes up. So you kind of have to embrace that. At the same time you know, it was like only my second time away from home. So I, I had been away once before for a year. And then this was my second time away. And, you know, learning how to, to just kind of survive and figure out where the grocery stores were each week and, and, you know, being strong enough to, to do that and to really be on your own. The canon was specific in the, in the sense that it was just me doing it. Um, and then I had two, a, a couple who would help and, and the lady was my backup, Nadia. And, uh, so it was really just the three of us and they had a family. So sometimes it was very lonely and to be okay with being alone and to know that I, I enjoy being alone and I'm okay with that. But also to know that like, if I need people, it's okay to ask for that and, and to go seek that out and to seek out the company. I think it's a an invaluable lesson to learn how to sit with oneself. And I think a lot of people really struggle with that. And, it, and it's fair or reasonable that they do. But it, listening to what you're saying, I think it sounds like you learned how to embrace and work with that. And I, I just think that that's got to be a priceless lesson to carry forward, how to live with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that, you know, you can't really describe. So I'm really thankful for that, but I'm also really thankful, like, I, I I compare it to a lot of things now. So if I'm, you know, I, I don't particularly like flying on airplane, and it's like one of those things, like, I got shot out of a cannon, like, of course I can fly in an airplane. Or like, you know, if I'm, I have a partner and I'm meeting their parents is always really terrifying for me. So I'm like, <laughs> you know, the, the normal things that most people have no problems with, I compare to getting shot out of a cannon and saying like, look, I can, if I can do that, I can do this kind of. So that's also yeah. a, a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a two-year contract with Ringling that you started with. You mentioned that you were there for a year, or a little more training and performing all in. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear from you about what happened at that point that changed course from fulfilling that full two years? Sure. So um, I ended up getting injured. So as you said at the top, cannon can be quite dangerous. And I um, ended up going feet first into the bag, which you're supposed to land on your back so that you can kind of 
uh, spread out the force of landing. So I went feet first and um, essentially all of the force that should have been spread out over my entire body, most of it went right into my right ankle. So I tore it up pretty, pretty good. And so I had to come off and rehab that for a while. And going back, you know, I had gained weight and I had, uh, I just wasn't, wasn't where I, I was hoping I would be. And, and it, it starts to mess with your head, you know, to, to know that something like that could happen. So I did end up going back and getting shot a couple more times in practice, which was really important to me to kind of like get back on the horse after you'd fallen off. Um, but after that, uh, Ringling decided to let me go. Um, so I ended up only doing about a year of, of Ringling instead of the full two years. It sounds like, if I understand this correctly, that they hung on while you rehabbed so that you had that time and then came back and you could have those practice shots, which I understand uh, and can really appreciate that attitude of wanting to to get back in there and not let that end on the injury note. But why do you think they were patient enough, or why do you know, maybe, that they were patient enough to let you rehab and come back and then say, you know what, we're going to move on? You, you never really know with Ringlane, it's a, or it was, they're not around anymore. It's a very large co- uh, corporation. So, you know, they, they do like when they can, you know, injuries do happen. And most companies try and hold on to that performer while they're rehabbing because the easiest thing to do is just have them go back once they're a hundred percent. You don't have to retrain or, or, you know, find somebody new. And with the Canon there, there are, not tons and tons of people who want to do it. So it was easier, <laughs> easier to kind of, uh, you know, let me rehab and see if, if that worked. And then as far as letting me go, I think there were a number of reasons on their end, but I don't think I'll ever know them. Okay. Uh, you had mentioned in another podcast that I'd listened to with another performer who I also happened to have met when he was a teenager, uh, yeah. Book Kennison, that some of these, uh, the matters with them you feel like pertain to one that performers they, that they could replace you, even though that's a really rare position that that was possible, but that there also was an element to it. I'm going to describe as a societal element where they had certain expectations of you as a young woman performing. And you said you came back having put on weight during the injury downtime. Yeah. And, I'm curious if you don't mind sharing a little bit of what you had mentioned in that other podcast interview. I'll leave it to you to describe to the extent you want with that. But I just think it's important that we talk about what that experience has, uh, how that played out for you. Sure. So circus, just like any other performing arts, um, there are people within it that have beauty standards. The same as the world has their beauty standards. And a lot of times you know, people will look for small, tiny girls. Um, so they want want you to be very slender, um, potentially very petite, because um, it's easier to throw people around, literally, not figuratively, um, <laughs> the smaller they are. So I had come back and I had put on weight and Ringling is, is kind of notorious for having a workplace environment that was very much, you know, if, if we need you, we can replace you. And everyone knew that there, there was nobody who was like, they'll never replace me because it was, it, it, it was such a big corporation. So they really had that ability to go out and find other people who were willing to do your job. So, 
you know, they also, they had a standard and they, they had a, a vision as to what, what they wanted me to look like and how they wanted me to look. And I wasn't fitting into that vision anymore, which is, is challenging as a young woman. I mean, I was 21 at that point and I had been really fortunate to grow up in a, in a place where weight was never an issue. You know, my coaches growing up were always much more focused on strength or whether we could do something or not versus, you know, how much we weighed. So it it was an eye-opening experience to really see that circus as a whole does think about that, you know, the same as society as a whole. And I think it's, it's super challenging, especially for young women right now to be judged on something as silly as, as weight or how they look. You know, I, I hope in the future people are, are judged on what they can do and who they are and, and what they bring to the table. Um, because your weight is such a inconsequential part of your life. Right. Thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned a little bit ago that Ringling is not around anymore. Of course, it it existed for nearly 150 years. And I'm wondering if at that point, you having been part of it, if you had any particular emotions or feelings, did it affect you in any particular way when you heard the announcement that Ringling Brothers, after all those years, was going to close? Yeah, it was crazy. So I had been off for a couple of years um, at that point. And really, them closing was challenging. But the thing that I think affected me much more was when they, the year before they closed, I think about a year before they closed, they retired all their elephants off the show. So they took all the elephants off the show, which had never happened. I mean, in, in their entire history, they always had elephants. And that was it affected me much more because I grew up in a, in a very traditional circus environment and elephants were such an um, integral part of that. And I, I had been so lucky that I got to, you know, I got to ride one when I was on Ringling and it was something that I actually, I asked for. I, the director of the show came up to me early on and was like, if you could have anything, what, what, what could I give you? And I asked for a cape, which I didn't get disappointingly (laughs) enough um, and to ride the elephants. So, so when they took the elephants off the show, it really felt like, like it had almost died a little bit then. Um, and then when they closed the show a few uh, years or so later, it was more disappointing to see how many lives were affected. Um, at that point, they had two shows going. So that's like well over 600 people who pretty much overnight were, you know, their whole lives changed. And that can be quite devastating. And, and to see that and to watch my friends go through that was really hard. Were you in touch with a number of friends that were going through that while it was happening? Yeah. I mean, there, there was a couple that I would keep in touch with, um, like texting and, and phone calls. And then, you know, your Facebook feed or my Facebook feed, I should say, just overnight, that's all it was. I mean, just instantly because so many people had connections to Ring Lane, either from working there or from knowing somebody or family working there. So that's all like for a, for a week, that's all Facebook was, was, can you see Ringling's closing? What are we going to do? Somebody so-and-so is looking for work. Like, can you help out? That kind of thing. It, it was, it was just incredible to see. So I happen to have noticed dates on that announcement that if this is correct, 
it seems to me that that announcement of Ringling Brothers closing, which came a few months before it actually happened, mm-hmm. was only a week after your grandfather, who uh, Nat Hentoff, who is a renowned jazz critic, Village Voice columnist, and, and many other things in writing, a week after he died. Do I have those dates right? Do you, do you remember it that way as being those two losses in your life only being a week apart? You know, I really don't. I, with my, my grandfather passing, he was in poor health for a long time, but it happened very suddenly. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like everybody has those, those people in their lives where you understand that eventually they're going to pass, they're going to die. But when it actually happened, it kind of happens, it kind of hits you a little bit. So I, I don't remember that being back to back, but I was also very sleep deprived probably at that point if it was just a week between because uh I was living in Montreal at the time and going back and forth to New York for for the funeral and all that kind of stuff so I can only imagine that I was not not all the way there on either of those things okay and and I hope that I have the dates on that correct but it seems like from what has been reported it looks to me like it was about a week apart there and having brought up your grandfather again his name is Nat Hentoff, and and some people might recognize that name because he really was renowned as a writer, a pioneering jazz writer in particular. He also wrote on social and political issues. He had friends that were, you know, big names. Like when it comes to jazz, you know, John Coltrane, Duke Ellington, just the biggest names that are out there. And I'm curious about the relationship that you had with, with him, uh, Realizing that he lived in New York, you grew up in St. Louis. Did you have uh, that kind of relationship of, of visits and, and any sort of closeness um, with him? Yeah. Um, so my mom, whose dad, father was Nat Huntoff, it was really close to her dad. So we went out to New York a couple of times a year to see him. And we have other family out there because uh, that's where she's from. So, you know, you don't realize that people in your life are famous until you're much older. So as a young child, there was never, you know, you didn't think about it. It was just your grandfather and you got to go over there and, and he would take you to the stationery store because that's what he would always do. There's a stationery store right around from the the corner from his apartment that he went to probably till the day he died. I want to say he was always there and you could pick out whatever pens you wanted and whatever notebooks you wanted um, or drawing things because he really wanted to encourage that. He, He liked that that he was, you know, contributing to you writing or drawing. So that, that, those were the memories of my grandfather. Sometimes you would, I have a very vivid memory. He is a um, pretty well-documented hoarder as far as papers go. (laughs) And he had an office when I was very young that the stacks of paper were taller than I was. And you would have to like kind of weave through them to get back to him, to where he was sitting and I have this just this vivid memory of walking walking through the stacks trying to find him. Um, but yeah, you don't think of them as famous. They're, they're just your grandparents. Um, so he's just, you know, Grandpa Nat. It, it wasn't until really he passed away that I realized what, what a big deal he was. What helped you to realize that? What was kind of the, the revelation there? The amount of obituaries that happened and the amount of different papers that picked it up and, you know... Even now, I still meet people and they recognize my last name and, and connect it to him. It, it's crazy to think that he 
affected and touched so many people's lives that he's still so well remembered even now. You know, I, I love these stories and occasionally I get to have them with people, these conversations, because, you know, like you're describing, he was just my grandfather. It's not like you sat around talking about jazz, it sounds like. <laughs> well, I mean, jazz was a very popular topic that and, and his uh, his political things came up quite often. But, you know, you mentioned him being friends with Duke Ellington. It, it was never a I was friends with Duke Ellington. It was a well, do you remember that time like Duke came over and he was doing this or that? You know, it, it, they're not famous people either because they're just friends of your grandfather's. No, none of who I ever met. Um, but my mother has memories of, you know, curling up on couches and in seats with with these incredible jazz musicians. So speaking of your mom, Jessica Hentoff, she is a lifelong circus performer, teacher. She has founded circuses, these things that um, really a, a life of this. And I know that her father was not real crazy about it for some years He because he was worried for her. And there was an article that he wrote for Wall Street Journal when he finally, after it, assuming this is true and accurate in this story, 10 years into her career before he could go look and see, okay, this is actually pretty cool and maybe not as dangerous as I had feared. And then her, your, your mother has three children, you and two younger brothers who all are performers. And I'm wondering how that registered maybe with your grandfather as well to be like, you know, I'm surrounded. And actually your, your dad too, come to think of it. Cause I, I don't know anything about your dad, but I know about you, your brothers and your mom, and to be surrounded by this circus life, I, I'm so curious about it. Yeah, so it is a true story. Um, my grandfather and my mother are very close, or we're very close, and they didn't actually talk for a few years um, when she first started touring kind of professionally because he was so upset, and he had sent her a net one time because he thought that would help because um, she performed an aerial act without a net. So, so yeah, total true story. I think by the time my mom had kids and we got into it, my grandfather was more open to the idea. Um, and at that point in time, my mom had really part of the program that she runs at Circus Harmony is is kind of a social justice one. She she works on bringing youth together from across uh, across Missouri and across St. Louis and different socioeconomic backgrounds. So he, he could really get behind that because uh, it fit into his social justice work. You know, as far as my dad goes, he knew what he was getting into, I should say. <laughs> um, <laughs> my mom was still performing when they met. So he uh, came from his his father and, and everything was an electrical contractor. They were all electricians. So, you know, early on, my dad would do the show lights for a lot of shows that my mom was on. So he would be the electrician. Uh, and then he, he dabbles. So, you know, he would still walk and he can juggle and he did some clowning for a while. And, uh, rumor has it, I've not seen any proof of this, but early on he tried trapeze. Uh, <laughs> but uh, who knows if that's true. Um, so yeah, he, my, my dad and my mom, they really wanted me and my brothers to, to be creative. I think they would have been okay with anything that we picked that was creative. Um, we all ended up landing in circus. So that, that was, that was acceptable too. By that extension, you mentioned circus harmony. 
you know, the social justice aspects that then becomes part of your life, at least in your coming up through that. Do, do you feel like what, because I bring this up in particular because of, we have so much going on, especially right now in the country, uh, with social unrest, with protests, with trying to make some progress here on, uh, equity throughout, uh, all communities in the country. And you have a grandfather who spoke out on these things, wrote on these things. He was known for that as well as he was for jazz and your mother and circus harmony. And that is about bringing together people from all backgrounds to, uh, learn and share in community and, and do good things. And I'm curious about that impact then on you and, uh, you know, maybe how, how you factor that into how you live and teach and perform and just be in this world now. Yeah. Yeah. The world is still, still hasn't caught up with what should be happening in my personal opinion, but, uh, -huh. <laughs> uh yeah, my childhood was, uh, eclectic to say the least. So, so my mother was running Circus Harmony since, you know, I was very young and, uh, within Circus Harmony, there was a group called St. Louis, the St. Louis Arches, which is a, still is an advanced acrobatics troupe. So I was in that at a very young age. And, you know, the first time I really realized that there was inequality was when she would bring kids home with her. You know, she had three little kids at home and almost every weekend we would have other students at, at the house with us that were our friends. So it was like a sleepover almost um, because they were safe at my mom's house because she knew that they would get to practice on time because she knew they would eat if they were at our house and to realize that that was a thing, you know, it, it was really eye opening. And, and even now when I go into these schools, I, I teach, um, I taught, I guess not, not during the pandemic, um, in a lot of the inner city schools and, and after school programs and to see the kids there and the difference between them and, and the, more affluent schools. It's, it's something you can't ignore. Right. And I'd like to hear more about the eclectic upbringing. Um, because I lived in St. Louis for a, a dozen years and I'm familiar with where this circus takes place, uh, that, that your mother leads and where she teaches and all these, I know where you spent this time and I'd love for you to describe where that is because that place really factors into a lot of what I, I assume the reasons you're describing this as eclectic. <laughs> so take us there. Tell, yeah. tell people, where did you grow up? Yeah, so Circus Harmony is located inside of City Museum, which um, a lot of people surprisingly have not heard of. But City Museum is a place that is pretty much indescribable. It was created by Bob Castley, and he kind of took the idea of recycling materials and making almost like a giant uh, artistic playground there's there's really a little bit of everything and his whole thing was like if it wasn't a little bit dangerous it probably wasn't that fun so <laughs> you know it's it's gotten safer in the years since but as a child and we we can't we went into the museum when it was first before it was even opened we were invited to to set up there so one of my very earliest memories was i was um like four or five maybe and walking through the museum while it was still under construction with my dad and, and seeing it kind of being built. But, you know, if, if you don't know what the city museum is, look up pictures because there's nothing that I can say that will ever, ever do it justice. Yeah. 
but yeah, that's, that's where we grew up. I, I've spent more time at the city museum than I have in any house that I've ever lived in ever. Cause we were there <laughs> all the time. And you know, as a child, you know, there was a handful of museum children whose parents worked there and we're all about the same age. And Bob would gather us up or grab whoever he could and, and let us test things out. So there's a lot of slides and, and things that I was the one of the first children on it. You know, he would test it out himself first, of course. But, <laughs> you know, the stories that I could tell you about the, the three story slide, they would used to let us figure out how how fast we could go down it. So you're not allowed to do this anymore because too many people broke arms and legs. <laughs> but the fastest way to go down that that three story slide is on a, a, a Coke crate. So they used to deliver Coke bottles in this like plastic, almost like milk crate kind of thing. And if you sit on that, it goes so quickly that you will hit the wall at the end every single time, guaranteed. But yeah, they stopped doing that because of the broken bones, (laughs) which sounds terrible. I know. That slide is amazing. It's a, it is a multi-story facility with just so much wild and imaginative stuff, plenty of heights, climbing, all kinds of ways that people could get hurt for sure. And, uh, and that is part of what the exciting thing was because it's what drew and, and I assume continues to draw adults as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's really something for every age there. They've created a, an itty bitty climbing play, space for the little kids, but then, you know, there's stuff on the roof that you can climb on. There's there's the Monstro City, which is all the outside stuff. They have man-made caves that you can climb through and all over. It, it's a very easy place to get lost. So I think that's that's rare these days that you can safely get lost in a place. I'll include it in the show notes on the website so people can go look because they really ought to. Like you're saying, it's to describe it, it's, it's one of a kind. But you also, with these kids... Two of them were your brothers, younger brothers. So you come up from very early age in this space, the city museum, in circus. Your brothers follow behind you. What kind of relationship in childhood, but maybe even if there's something to speak to now as well, you and your brothers, like that's a different kind of siblinghood. And I'm going to guess sibling (laughs) rivalry. Yeah, to say the least. No, I got super lucky with my siblings. So I have two younger brothers. Um... Keaton and Kellen, and they are both still in the circus now, but we we all grew up, we were all in the circus together, and then we were all homeschooled together. So these are people that I spent all of my time with, and it does foster some some rivalry, but also, you know, it's, it's something that nobody else understands my childhood more than my brothers, and I feel so lucky to have that with, with people. Um, so yeah, Keaton is now an acrobat with a company uh, based out of Australia called Circa and he's living there. So he's all the way in Australia, far, far away from us, which makes me sad, but I, I get to talk to him on a pretty regular basis because of technology. Yay, technology. Um, <laughs> and then my youngest brother, Kellen is a juggler and he, you know, juggles professionally. If, if you can, can say that. And he works with, with shows like Circus Flora and with Midnight Circus in Chicago um, he's traveled internationally and he's, he's super cool too. So I, I lucked out when it comes to siblings. I want to say as a child, having Kellen was a little bit challenging because both of my brothers are, are very, 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 very naturally gifted. So things that I would struggle with, they would get quite easily. And Kellen one time came to me and he's a juggler. And I, 
and four years older than him. And he goes, Ellie, you know, maybe you should just stop trying with with the juggling. (laughs) Cause I was so, so bad at another gem with him. He's, uh, he came up to me and I was, I do hula hoops was my ground act. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to learn hula hoops and I'm going to be better than you. And he did. And he is. And (laughs) you just got to accept that and embrace it. And, and that, you know, I got lucky. They're really cool people and they're amazing. You know, Keaton travels all over the world with Circa, but he also, he, he, he's decided, or he did, they're not traveling right now. And he had a hotel test kitchen because as an acrobat, you live in hotels so much of the time and you don't have a kitchen. So he was learning, you know, learned how to like make things with just an iron and, you know, not, not having a microwave or anything. So he can make a mean quesadilla with an iron and there's, there's recipe. He has a whole Instagram page, you know, dedicated to it, which is pretty funny. So yeah, my brothers are awesome. I can, I can say that. And they're pretty cool people. That sounds great. And I, and yeah, the idea that you guys have such an unusual childhood that only the three of you really get it together. Like even to say growing up in a circus, right? It's not just one of you, it's three of you. And even doing that, it's in the city museum. That's really cool. And I'm sure you have stories for days and all of you need to write memoirs. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, my mother's rule of thumb growing up uh, was don't come to her unless we were bleeding, essentially, if, <laughs> if she was working. And so one time uh, we duct taped one of my brothers to the wall while she was in a meeting. And then we're s- charging people to throw things at <laughs> So she wasn't, <laughs> the stories like that, that I, I can, you know, we made some money and we protected his, his important bits. We, you know, put a mask <laughs> on him and stuff, but yeah, she wasn't too happy when she came out to see that. So we got, we got into some things to, to be sure. Wow. And, and did your mom handle the homeschooling and the circus side? Like she just, she did all of that when you were hanging out at the city museum all day, every day. Yep. Yeah. So we would, um, we would have curriculum and and things that we were assigned to do and you would be sat somewhere to do it. Depending on how, how well behaved you were, you could kind of pick where you were sitting. Yeah. So she was our, our homeschool teacher. She was our circus teacher. She was our mom. So sometimes if you were, if we got in trouble, she would tell us, she would go, your circus teacher called your mom and told her that you weren't, you know, (laughs) you didn't do well today. And and then you would get a talking to her vice versa. Um, So that was always kind of, you know, it was a challenging dynamic, but she she's probably one of the hardest working people I know and, and continues to be. The the things that she does, you know, my family legacy with her and my grandfather, there I you know, I'd have to win a Nobel Prize or something to live up to it. That's amazing. And I and I love that your family is so close. Kind of despite it all, because you could be because of it, but you also could be like, Oh, it's time to to get some space. And I love that that you guys have so much love for each other and, and continue. Yeah. Well, my, my middle brother did move to Australia. So some space is required. Well, <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Yay. Technology. Though, Yay right? Technology. We can still keep in touch and, you know, just no unexpected visits, I think, which is, is really his goal. So there you go. <laughs> well, and speaking of another country and another area of the world, you have performed uh, in other places in the world. And part of it is with your mom and and a program there, right? Like she has expanded this idea of social justice, social circus 
beyond St. Louis in that region. Uh, if I understand this correctly, you have been in Israel, Dubai. You went to school in Canada when you mentioned the other year you'd been away from home. It, tell me something about that experience of taking that elsewhere in the world. Uh, you guys are getting this international breadth of understanding of the world and circus. Yeah, so my mom developed a program called uh, Peace Through Pyramids, which the premise originally was to, you know, connect circuses across the world and youth youth social circus, I should say. And the first first time we did that was with a with an Israeli Arab circus. And um we went to Israel for 2 weeks. You know, we I think there was 10 of us, 10 kids on the first trip and we worked with with Jewish and Arab kids there. And you don't think of it as at the time as doing anything incredibly social um, specific to me. It was, I was doing circus with all these cool people and I got to go to Israel, which was awesome. But looking back, it was such a political statement at that time to have American kids and Jewish kids and Arab kids all working together in in such a cohesive, positive way. It, It really wasn't, wasn't happening. And, and so to, to be a part of that was incredible. And moving forward, we went back several years. And now we do a, a similar program with a school in Puerto Rico. So we went, went there after Hurricane Maria, um, a year-ish after, after the hurricane. And we worked with a group of kids there. And I was lucky enough to go as a, as a chaperone this time because now I'm old and I'm not part of the <laughs> – I, I teach now and I, I'm not one of the kids. But we went and, you know, we went to – the villages that had been hardest hit, like when they picked out where the, the, the show was going to tour, that's, that's what they picked was the ones that had been hardest hit. And we're talking over a year after, and these people still don't have electricity. So, so to see that and to be able to bring joy to those people, those are experiences that I would never trade in for a million years and feel so lucky that I'm part of community that embraces that and does that. You know, it reminds me, the fact that you have grown to a place of not only experience, but to a teacher level. So your your mother was a performer, moves into teaching, has kids, the kids come up in circus, now you're a teacher, and there's this continuing progression and this shared experience overall, uh, let alone the specific stories like you were just telling with you and your mother. And I'm curious because there is, there is some working together there still, right? I I don't know if you do that on a daily basis, but you work together. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. She's my boss. So she continues to to be a complicated part of my life. She's my mother and my boss now. Uh, Yeah. So now I'm, I teach, I teach the kids that I used to be essentially, which is crazy. Yeah. I teach for Circus Harmony, which is super fun. I mean, has there ever been a moment where you and, and your mom, kind of like, wow, you know, because I'll tell you, I'm, I'm in my mid forties now and I still shake my head at how did I get to this age? How am I not 15 or 25 or whatever anymore? And for the two of you to have that closeness of relationship, the shared experience, and then to be working together, like I would just think for me anyway, there'd be a moment where I'd be like, how did this happen? How did we get to here already? Yeah. I don't know if I look at that point yet. Sometimes when I think about how long I've been teaching, it hits me. Like I have students who, since I started so young, I started running classes myself when I was 15. So I have students that started when they were, you know, four and five and six that I'm, they're now like graduating high school, which 
just blows my mind because I haven't changed. I haven't aged, obviously. And here, the, <laughs> here they are going from a little tiny child to, you know, almost an adult. So I think that's always, always just kind of is crazy. You know, there are moments when you look at it and you, I'm so impressed what she's created and the environment that she's fostered. And then there are other moments when I, you know, wonder if she's ever going to sleep again. So, you know, it's back and forth. <laughs> it's back and forth. You mentioned those young ages and it, you know, we didn't mention how early you started. I think I said that you have performed, you know, been a lifelong, this, I mean, this has been your life and it really has since being a baby. So if you'll, for a moment, please back us up and just <laughs> tell us how you got started when, I mean, you were extremely young. Yeah. So the first time that I was officially in a show, I was two weeks old because that was the amount of maternity leave my mother had. So I played the baby very convincingly in Circus <laughs> Flora um, when I was two weeks old. And then I did my uh, first trick, which is every, this is kind of everybody's first trick as a child, you, the baby balance. So, so babies naturally will lock out their knees at a certain point and you can balance them. You hold their feet and you, you balance them. So that was my first trick. And they didn't tell my dad that that was happening. So he was sitting up in the, in the one of the spotlight operating boxes and said he nearly jumped out of it when they, when they started balancing me at a, you know, a couple months old. So yeah, I've been doing it literally forever. I, I started to really perform when I was like six, when I could actually do something. And yeah, started teaching at 15 and, you know, helping out with classes even earlier than that. So this is, this has been a real lifelong journey. And you started writing elephants early too, right? I mean, wasn't that part of the very early story as well? Was that, was that the six month mark? Yeah, somewhere around there. So there's a, there's a picture of my mother on an elephant with me. And the story goes, I was still young enough that I was breastfeeding. So apparently she also breastfed me on the elephant at some point in time. But there's no oh, pictures man. of that. But, you know, I can say that that's how I was fed as a child was while sitting on an elephant. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit speechless at the moment, <laughs> right? Because, because, I mean, we truly, like, like, I knew when we were going to talk that this has been a lifelong thing. And I just wanted to clarify that for anyone listening. It truly has been lifelong. That's amazing. It, de it definitely um, hasn't been boring. What I want to ask then is about... If we look at this whole picture, what do you think you've learned about yourself so far as a human being coming through all these experiences? You know, I think the the biggest takeaway for me is that you put limits on yourself. You are able to do so much more than you ever expected. And that has been proven to me over and over and over again. And the more that you tell yourself, I can't, the more you believe it. And it's just not true. You can do absolutely anything you put your mind to. And your body is strong enough and you are mentally strong enough and emotionally strong enough to do anything you set, set as a goal. So that's probably the biggest takeaway for me is that I am able to and that I limit myself and I'm the only person that is limiting myself because as soon as I take those limits off, I can do anything I want. Yeah. You know, I, I realize I should have just attached that to our final question here. because It's the question, <laughs> it's, it's the question that I ask everyone 
because it's at the heart of humanity, which is, you know, as I say, humanity empowers conversations of humanness and creativity. So at the end of every conversation I have for the podcast, I ask people about their humanness and creativity. And it's essentially a summary thought because, of course, we've just talked about all kinds of things that are about who you are as a being contributing good and, and creativity in the world. So I think the way I'm going to ask it this time is it seems like it comes down to maybe a, a self-defined thing about how you live authentically as a human in the world. Maybe it's about your view of the world and what it is you want to shine and contribute creatively, imaginatively, just as a being. I know wow. that also is a mouthful, <laughs> but no, it's, it's just... Good. It's good. I actually have a perfect answer for that. So Great. I have been blessed to be coached by some really incredible people, including my mother, including Warren Bacon, um, just in really stunning humans. And my mom, when she first got into this, was she was in college, she first, first started... And she went back to her first teacher and she asked, you know, this is my life path. What what can I do to thank you? You know, you showed me, you set me on this path that I will do for the rest of my life. How can I thank you for that? And her teacher told her, pass it on. Do what I've done for you for somebody else. And as I grow older and I realize that I'm on this life path, you know, I, I take those words to heart. And that's part of the reason I'm a teacher is so that, I can pass it on and to to change somebody's life, even if it's just for a day and and to to be able to give joy and to give hope and to change somebody's life because at the end of the day if i if I can help another human being, just one, if I've made a difference in just a single person's life, then it's all worth it. That's beautiful. Eliana, thank you for your time and for sharing. I've enjoyed getting to know more of these stories and to hear about human cannonballness and all the good things and your family. It's all good stuff. Thank you very much for sharing. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been so much fun. There we go. That was my conversation with Eliana Grace, a circus performer and teacher in today's Humanity Conversation of Humanness and Creativity. You can learn more about Eliana in the show notes published on our website at Humanitude.com. And if you'd like to know more of the good stuff that Humanity offers in your world, then I invite you to follow, subscribe, and post reviews on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and other players. And I sure would appreciate your sharing the Humanity Podcast on your social media pages with family, with friends, however you share, I'd appreciate the share. So together we can cultivate that more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. If you have feedback on this conversation or the Humanity Podcast series, you can send me an email at adam at humanitu.com or reach me by Instagram DM at humanitu. And that's it today. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thanks for being here. Bye, we're good.